0: I had a New Testament professor in seminary who regularly said this in class. And when my wife was reading over my sermon, she guessed exactly who it was. She remembered this professor. We would be dealing with a difficult passage in Romans, and we would be looking at the debate around it. And then a student would put up their hand, and and just so you know, this was never me. I would never do something like this. But another student would put up their hand, and they would say something like this. Professor, I just don't feel that Barth's interpretation of this passage is correct. Our professor whenever he heard any kind of line like that would stop. It would get very awkward because he would wait and drag the stop out and after a long silence he would look at that student and see and say to that student, "I don't care about your feelings." Tell me what you think about this passage, and give me reasons for why you think that about this particular passage. Now, you see, our professor wasn't against feelings. He wasn't anti-feelings. In fact, he was actually one of the most passionate professors that I had in seminary. He was known for, when he got really excited, standing on desks. And I remember him one time even crawling across the floor in order to make points. He was a very feeling-oriented, passionate type of person. But feelings have a proper place. And when it comes to understanding an interpretation of a passage of Scripture in Romans, feelings is not the proper place for that. In one of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, he has a senior demon giving a junior demon advice on how to trip up a Christian. And he gives his junior demon this advice. He says, make sure that you produce in him a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence has no part. And then he says, it's funny how these humans are so concerned about us putting things into their mind when in reality, our main job is keeping things out of their mind. So keep him focused on trying to produce feelings and to estimate the value of his faith by the success he is having in producing those desired feelings. Over the years, I've had several different opportunities to speak at different interfaith Rallies. Often, well, I'm always asked to give the Christian perspective on whatever the topic is. And one of my biggest frustrations at those rallies is I can stand up and I'm given my time. And let's say I talk for a certain amount of time on the resurrection of Christ. And I can give reasoned arguments. From history, and from logic, and from the birth of the church, and I can go through all the different reasons for why I believe there's evidence for the resurrection. And after pouring all of that out, I'll have the next speaker or whoever else, uh, maybe that's hosting it, or the MC, come up and say something like, Well, Pastor Steph, I'm glad you feel that way about the resurrection. I'm sorry, but I just don't feel the same as you do. As if feelings trump everything that I've just said. That it doesn't matter the, the arguments or the logic, but if someone feels different, then that obviously therefore means it's invalid. It reminds me of some of the torturous home Bible studies I've suffered through, which I often would rather call them home Bible feelings. Uh, Because a lot of times, very little study actually goes on and a whole lot of feeling gets expressed around the circle. And since personal feelings are all that matter, then what happens at these interfaith rallies is that then they say that all views, all religions are exactly the same. Why? Because we feel like that should be the way it is. And this is why testimony has limited value. Personal testimony, it has some value, but if it's testimony alone, testimony on things like, they asked me how I know he lives, and we answer by saying, because he lives within my heart. Well, I know from experience, from again, a lot of the interfaith rallies that I go to, that people claim that there's all kinds of things living in their heart. People even claim they have aliens living in their heart. So if you ask me how you know there's aliens, and you say because they live within your heart, I'm still going to have some questions for you. Testimony alone, feelings alone, are not what we base our faith on. And thankfully, the New Testament never asks us to do that. Unlike the foundation of feelings that is so popular in our culture, Scripture claims and the scriptural claims that we have are based on external evidence. They're based on things external to just what's going on in my inner feeling life. And this is why a private speaking to my heart reading of scripture is often more of a modern and dangerous way to read scripture than a proper way to read scripture. My New Testament professor would have none of that. And neither would the biblical writers. I don't care about your feelings. I want to know what you think and why you think the way you do. As Peter continues his first sermon, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we got into the first half of the sermon last week, he goes on to make, as the name of Lee Strobel's book, Case for Christ, states... He goes on in the rest of the sermon to make his case for Christ. He follows the same pattern that we'll see the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts when we start getting into Paul's life. Over and over we see that Paul went into the synagogue and it says he reasoned, he argued, he explained, he debated with the people of the synagogue about why Christ is truly who he was and why he rose from the dead. He did the same thing with the Greeks at Athens when he was uh, debating with the Greek philosophers Reason was something that Lewis saw was his friend, his ally in the defense of the faith. And as Peter does the second half of the sermon, he brings forward four different witnesses for why he believes in the truth of God's message. And this morning, we're going to go through the rest of that sermon and look at these four reasons That Peter brings forward to that crowd who has just seen the Holy Spirit come. They're wondering what's going on. Peter's now explaining to them the reasons for why he stands by this message that he is preaching. As he says elsewhere in one of his letters, he says, We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are not inventions, these are not stories, these are not tales. He says we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. We're eyewitnesses to this truth. And so now in this sermon these are the appeals he gives, these are the witnesses he gives. First Peter appeals to Jesus' miracles and to the crowd that's there hearing his message because many of them were also eyewitnesses. Peter also appeals to God's prearranged plan and to Old Testament prophecy. Peter appeals to Jesus' death and resurrection as a historical fact. And also, Peter appeals to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to to 38. And we're going to look at each of these appeals for why Peter believes in the message. And unpack each one. Peter starts this section of his message by saying in verse 22, God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. It's an interesting statement here. He says that God publicly made a demonstration of the truth of who he is. He publicly made a demonstration through signs, miracles, all these different things that Jesus did. And then he says, as you well know. It's one thing to claim verification of signs and wonders and say, I saw it. I was over somewhere where you never were and I saw this and you have to take my word for it. And depending on my trustworthiness, you could... Decide to believe or not believe. But this case is a little bit different because Peter adds the words, as you well know, this is not something that I just saw that I'm simply claiming, but Peter's saying, you too saw this. Peter is preaching to a group of people that were alive during the time of Jesus' ministry. Many of these people in the crowd that he is speaking to were people that heard Jesus preach. Many of the people that were in this crowd were people that saw Jesus do miracles. Many of the people in this crowd were individuals that had family members or had friends who were actually healed by Jesus. Peter's saying that you know this to be true. You know this to be true because you saw it just as much as I saw it with your own eyes. You experienced this. Not only is Peter preaching to people who were alive during Jesus' earthly ministry, but the book of Acts, this account here that has been written down for us, was also written during the time when many of these people were still alive. The fact that Paul is still alive at the end of the book of Acts, and Paul died around 67 AD. Also, the fact that the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and it's not mentioned in Acts, uh, makes many people feel that Acts is, or I should say, many people think that Acts, many people think that Acts has written before 67 A.D. I mean, it, and it makes sense. It would almost seem ludicrous to have a historical document like the book of Acts not record Paul's death. Uh, And and not record the destruction of the Jewish temple. To just completely ignore those things if it was written after the fact. Uh, That therefore means that there's a good chance that Acts was written during the time when people were still alive who experienced, saw, touched, heard Jesus. Even those who were enemies of the faith could not deny that Jesus had done these things. It's interesting that the attacks against the faith uh, during this time were not attacks of you guys are just making this up. It never really happened. Jesus didn't exist. Nobody argued that. Everybody knew who Jesus was and that Jesus did do these things. And so what they had to do is come up with alternative theories. Which is important to realize that facts alone don't convince people. You can always spin the facts. And so uh, they would have to come up with alternative theories. They would say, well, well, Jesus obviously got his power from, from demons. So he's actually in league with the, with, with the devil. That's where he got his powers from. Or some people would say, well, okay, the tomb was empty. That's because you disciples stole the body uh, so that it would appear that he rose from the dead. But nobody denied that the tomb was empty. Nobody denied that Jesus did miraculous things. They just had to come up with, if they didn't believe... Alternative explanations. Peter says in Acts, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. He doesn't say God raised Jesus from the dead, and we just experienced him in our hearts some kind of mystical, spiritual resurrection. That's not what what Peter says. He says that God really raised Jesus from the dead. We were witnesses of this. And when you go back to the Gospels, you see that Jesus ate in front of them. They touched Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. He also goes on to the very next verse and says, The Father gave Jesus the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Uh, These people were witnessing it right now, the Holy Spirit coming. Peter continually... Appeals to the senses of sight, of hearing, of touching. These are things that have empirical evidence behind them. Peter appeals to Jesus' miracles. And he appeals to the eyewitnesses that were all around him. And says, you know these things happened. You know these things to be true. And no one could deny that. Even later, as I said, when Acts was written, nobody could deny that this happened. They just had to decide what they were going to do with that evidence. Peter also appeals to God's prearranged plan and Old Testament prophecy. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that has given me many headaches in my, my, my Christian years has been the whole trying to figure out God's sovereignty and human free will. You know, the whole predestination free will thing. I used to agonize over this on and on and on trying to figure this out. Um, I have to admit that um, I'm not as bothered by the debate today as much as I used to be. Hopefully that's not because I'm becoming lazy intellectually and it's maybe just a little bit more of an acceptance of the mystery It's still something that I I struggle with uh, uh, at times. But I recognize that all of our simplistic answers to the whole God is in control of everything and yet we have free will debate. All of our simplistic answers end up sounding something like Job's friends. Somehow God is completely in control of everything. And yet human beings have the ability to make free decisions that actually affect things. And we see that in what happens in this next part in Peter's sermon. Peter goes on and says, God knew what would happen. Okay, I can that, that makes a little more sense to me. God has foreknowledge. This is verse 23. God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan... Was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. So this is this goes beyond foreknowledge. This says yeah God knew what would happen. But also it was part of his prearranged plan. That's predestination. That's God's complete absolute sovereignty. God's in total control. Everything that happened to Jesus. His life. His death. His resurrection. The coming of the Holy Spirit. His ascension. All of that was all part of God's prearranged plan. And yet... Look what the very next sentence is right after that. His prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Like, that kind of bothers me a bit. Uh, Not only the accusation, which we eventually have to uh, receive and realize that we all did nail Jesus to the cross because of our sin, but the the puzzle there. This was all part of God's prearranged plan. You nailed him to the cross. And yet somehow it's not that God's prearranged plan forced you to nail him to the cross. That God just manipulated everything and forced you to do it. You actually chose to do that because of your sin. And yet, this was all part of God's pre-arranged plan. One other thing is, is this passage in verse 23 should also dispel any anti-Semitic ideas that have crept up in the church at times to accuse the Jews of being Christ killers. I mean, it's pretty clear here that Peter says that it was lawless Gentiles and Jews who had Jesus nailed to the cross. I don't know how how much more explicit you can get. It was all of us who stand condemned because of our sin, because of of our rejection of God and God's love for us. We all chose to kill God's Messiah. And God knew this ahead of time. And somehow in God knowing this ahead of time, this became part of his prearranged salvation plan. Peter looks in particular at how the Old Testament prophets said that this was going to happen. He refers to King David as a prophet. And then quotes from three different Psalms. And says this. David prophesied about all this. In Psalm 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110, we read this. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No no wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life. And you will fill me with the joy of your presence. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Commenting on these passages here in this sermon in Acts 2, what Peter says is that David is not talking about himself here. He says that David is talking about the coming Messiah. David lived about a 1,000 years before Jesus walked this earth. And so what Peter is saying is a 1,000 years before Jesus walked this earth, already our ancestor, our king, our prophet David said that resurrection of the Messiah was going to happen. Now, to, to the extent that David actually understood all of this, is up for debate. God often spoke through people even beyond what they fully understood. But one thing we can know is that his words came true. And so the second witness that Peter gives is that Peter appeals to God's prearranged plan. God is in absolute control. And we can know this also because Old Testament prophecy, which happened even a thousand years before Christ, was fulfilled. Then he comes to witness three. Peter appeals to Jesus' death and resurrection as a historical fact. One of the big mistakes, and we're going to see this in this, these passages from the Psalms that, um, that Peter has quoted from, one of the big mistakes that we make when reading the Old Testament is to impose upon the Old Testament New Testament ideas, to to. To think that people in the Old Testament had as developed of a theology or as as developed of a thinking as we do today or people in the New Testament, and one of those areas that this happens in is in regards to what happens after death. See for most of the Old Testament, the writers believed that death was simply the end. at best, some of the Old Testament writers saw that what happened after death was some kind of a shadowy existence. Uh, In in Hebrew, the word sheol would be used, the realm of the dead. Uh, Translated into Greek, it's Hades. It's this sort of shadow existence, kind of half awake, half asleep, um, half existence, you could call it. Uh, Some would believe that. Others believe that it was just the end. In fact, in the first five books of the Old Testament, there's no mention of the afterlife at all. Which is why the Sadducees in Jesus' day, who only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, they didn't believe in an afterlife. We're going to find later on in Acts how Paul uses that to his advantage at one time when he gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees debating with one another. But you see that the Pharisees who did, did believe and the Sadducees who did not believe in an afterlife. For the vast majority of the Old Testament, uh, there was not a developed understanding of the afterlife. When you get to some of the later books in the Old Testament, like the book of Daniel, one of the last ones written, you start beginning to see a developed view of afterlife that comes about at the end of the age. As Northeastern theology professor Richard Middleton puts it, the Old Testament does not typically place any significant hope in life after death. This is why, this is to help you understand why Peter, when he quotes those psalms, and David in the psalms says things like, you will not leave me here to die. You will bring me back alive. You will, and he has all these, these uh, different terms. Why you are mistaken to read that as see David believed in the afterlife. Because Peter says in verse 29, David wasn't referring to himself. For he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. See, Peter understands the development of Jewish thought. And Peter says, well, a thousand years ago, David couldn't have been thinking that about himself. Uh, uh, David wasn't referring to himself. He says, David died. And David was buried. And and he even appeals to the fact that, look, this, this tomb is right here among us. David's dead. Not only was the idea of David being resurrected a foreign concept in David's time, but according to Peter, the fact that the tomb was still there was also verification that Jesus was still dead. Peter even debunks the theory of David floating off to heaven. In verse 34, he says, David himself never ascended into heaven. For these reasons, Peter is saying, these passages are about the Messiah, They're not about David because because David wasn't resurrected. David didn't ascend to heaven. We know that David wasn't referring to himself. David's dead. David never ascended. Well, then who is he referring to? Would be the obvious question that the Jews would be asking. And what Peter's saying is that David is pointing to the Messiah. When David says God will not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave and he will ascend and sit at the right hand of God, Peter is saying that David means Jesus. It is Jesus whom God raised from the dead. It is Jesus for death could not keep its grip on him. So in verse 31, Peter says, so David was looking into the future. And he was speaking about the Messiah's resurrection. And it's this, Peter is saying, that has happened in our time. That's what you are witnesses to. That's what happened in your lifetime. Just as many of you could testify. As Paul also said, the resurrected Jesus was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of whom are still alive though some have died. This is also why Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 and says that Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of the great harvest of all who have died. What does he mean by that? He means by that that nobody rose from the dead before Jesus did. There was no resurrection before Jesus did. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus was the first one, the first fruits, the first of a great harvest that will follow Jesus. As Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is how he unpacks his argument. He says, when the trumpet sounds in the last day, those who have died will be raised to live forever. God's plan is to raise the dead at the last day and to prove that this is going to happen. He did it in the middle of time with Jesus. Jesus was the first who ever rose from the dead. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too who are in Christ will follow Christ in that resurrection. He's the first fruits. We'll be the second, third, and fourth and fifth fruits following in Christ's resurrection. And what Peter is saying is we know this has happened. This is not wishful thinking This is something that happened in time and space and history here among you. We are eyewitnesses of this. In fact, to prove that it wasn't even just a hallucinatory event, uh, Peter is saying that this hasn't been seen by just one or two isolated people. In fact, 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at the same time. It's pretty hard for 500 people to hallucinate all at the same time. This is something that happened. And then Peter goes on to his fourth witness and appeals to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Now, last week's message was all about what the coming of the Holy Spirit meant, so I'm not going to spend time on that this morning. This morning, we're looking more at these proofs of how we know these things are true, that they really happened. The point here is that Peter is saying that the coming of the Holy Spirit, just like the resurrection of Jesus, is a historical fact. Again, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not something that just happened in someone's personal feelings or heart. It's something that happened that you yourself have seen in Mass. In Acts 2.33, he says, The Father, again now appealing to God's sovereignty, as he promised, the Father as he promised, Gave Jesus the Holy Spirit. Not just to Jesus, but he gave Jesus the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. And then notice what he says. Once again, just as you see and hear today. So he's saying again, uh, this was God's promise to Jesus, that it was going to come through Jesus, poured out upon all of us, and this has happened, just as you are seeing it. This has happened in front of your very face. Not only was the coming of the Holy Spirit a fulfillment of prophecy. Joel said that this was going to happen. But it was now being fulfilled. Now as I said earlier. Facts alone won't convince. Facts alone won't convince. But at least. What we will hope people will do is deal with the facts. Facts. When I'm again speaking at the interfaith rally, and, and I give what I feel are facts, I don't mind if somebody wants to argue back and say, yes, but if you look at the facts this way and that, there's an alternative explanation to that. Then we, we can work with something. But don't patronize me with saying that my facts are mere, merely feelings. Because then we have nowhere to go. We have nowhere to dialogue. If you just simply say, well, I feel differently. There's nowhere you can go with that. Let's deal with the facts. And so, facts alone won't convince. Just as when the coming of the Holy Spirit came, it says that 3,000 people came and gave their lives to Christ and understood this as a fulfillment of prophecy. It says that a number of other people said it was alcohol. These guys are just drunk. So again, you can still look at it, and nobody can deny something happened. The disciples were filled with something. That's a fact. Many understood it to be the Holy Spirit because of other reasons, and some had to use the excuse of, well, it must be alcohol. I find it funny that Peter says that, well, it can't be alcohol because it's only 9 in the morning. I don't really know what that has to do with it because... You can still get hammered at 9 in the morning. But anyway, I guess that's less likely. But the facts are something happened. And we are going to look at facts depending on how we see things. We're going to look at facts differently. It reminds me of the great feast the lion Aslan prepared for the ungrateful dwarfs in one of the Narnia books. Though Aslan prepared this feast for them, And they were eating the richest delicacies. They were unable to enjoy them. Why? Because their hard hearts and their hard attitudes, what what they were eating was a rich feast, but they believed they were eating mud and straw and that Aslan was cursing them. They were unable, because of their blindness, because of the hardness of their heart, to see the facts correctly and decided to interpret it as mud and straw and curses. And so what the dwarfs did is just complained all the more, even as Aslan was blessing them. Uh, Peter, when he presents the gospel, is not afraid of facts and reason and goes there. He appeals to Jesus' miracles and to the crowd as themselves eyewitnesses. He appeals to God's prearranged plan in Old Testament prophecy. He appeals to Jesus' death and resurrection as something that really happened in history. He also appeals to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that happened there then, they saw it, and the ongoing work That the spirit continues to do. Now after giving this whole message. We read in verse 37. That Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him. And to the other apostles. Brothers. What should we do? Many people recognize. The truth of this. And the truth. That that they themselves. Stand condemned. As killers of God's Messiah. And they said, brothers, what should we do? And it's the question that we all have to ask. That if these facts are true, if these things really did happen, if God really did communicate this way, if this is a true message, it's the question that we all have to ask is, if that's true, what should we do? It doesn't matter how you feel about these ideas. It doesn't matter if you like them or if you don't like them. What matters is whether or not they're true. And if they're true, it changes everything. Because it forces you to make a decision. And the decision has only one right response. You still can choose to not make that response, but the right response is the response that Peter replied with when they said, what should we do? If this is true, what should we do? Peter replied and said, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's our response. If this is true, and if you believe this to be true, your response has to be repentance. Lord, I stand guilty as a rebel against you. I nailed Jesus to the cross because of my sins just like anybody else. And I repent, I say I'm sorry, and I turn from my sins. Lord, I no longer want to live for myself. I want to live for you. I want to turn from my sins, turn to you. And how do we show that? Through baptism. Being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the marker that says yes. And the reason why baptism is so important is because, again, the Bible wants to constantly move us away from just feelings in my heart. There's something inadequate about, well, I just accepted Jesus in my heart. Well, the New Testament doesn't put a lot of credence in that. It says, be baptized. Why? Because it takes it out of just something in your heart, and it makes it evident to all. It makes it empirical. It makes it outside of yourself. It makes it tangible. It makes it real. It's like when you get married and you put a ring on, you're saying not only... Inside my heart do I love my wife, but I'm symbolically showing it with something tangible, real, that everybody else can see. And so the Bible, the New Testament, constantly pushes us to go beyond just what you feel in your heart. And says, repent, turn from your sins, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do, you too will receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit who comes upon you and begins to empower your life to live free from sin, to use your gifts in a way that glorifies God. My call to you today, just as Peter's call to the crowd that he spoke to, is to make sure you're right with God. What are you going to do with the facts? The facts of Jesus' death and resurrection and what he did for you. He's asking you to come to him, to repent and turn your life around and be baptized if you have not yet been baptized. You can talk to us pastors about setting that up for the forgiveness of your sins so that God can pour his Holy Spirit out on you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming and dying for us for obeying and submitting to your heavenly father so that though we were sinners who nailed you to the cross, you overcame death and became the first fruits of new life. You rose from the dead and are offering eternal life to all who follow you. Lord, I pray for softening of the heart for anyone here who does not yet know you To turn their life to you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.